Tonight's very special. Holy shit, the NBA just started. Let's go. Episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Finding key players for your team can be challenging. Just look at the Celtics. They lost Al Horford. We have Enos Cantor, Rob Williams. I, I don't even know who's going to play center for this team. It's challenging. It take, But guess what? I believe in Danny Ainge. I believe in Mike Zarin. We're going to find the guys. Cafe El Torres CEO Dylan Miskowitz, he could relate. He needed a hire director of coffee. Posted a job on ZipRecruiter, found the best person for the role in just a few days. Four or five employers will post on ZipRecruiter. Get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash BS for free. ZipRecruiter, smartest way to hire. Meanwhile, State Farm believes in strengthening communities with a challenge to all State Farm employees and agents to give back with 100 acts of good. The acts can be as small as giving a hug to a friend in need or as big as saving a beached whale. See how State Farm employees are doing good at neighborhoodofgood.com. We're also brought to you by the ringer.com and the ringer podcast network. We just, uh, Kicked off the NBA today on The Ringer with a whole bunch of new NBA videos and uh, and podcasts and multimedia content, including a Lakers wine bottle team that I created from the last 40 years. We had a lot of people weighing in on that. Take Hunter 4. You can find that as well. You can find a lot of different season preview stuff, the return to NBA desktop, and a whole lot more. Go to our YouTube page, youtube.com slash ringer or theringer.com, and you can find all that stuff. Coming up, my thoughts on Lakers Clippers tonight. I went, I'm going to give you uh, some of my reactions, and then we're going to have Edward Norton coming on. Yet another A-list actor who has not been on the BS podcast. We have changed that today. That's happening. All coming up first, our friends from Pearl Jam. Taping this at 10.45 Pacific time. Just came back from Lakers, Clippers, opening night, Staples Center. A night unlike any Clipper game I've been to for a few reasons. I've had season tickets for the Clippers since 2004. I almost gave them up, I think, in 2009. And my friend Mike Tolan convinced me to keep them. We split the tickets. We thought it might be a mistake. We saw some dark times. We saw some bad times. If you read my archives on ESPN.com, there are some uh, some funny nights that we spent there at Staples. I remember a Zebo airball ending a game. I think I wrote a whole running diary about just what an awful sports experience it was. So we've seen some bad things. Blake Griffin showed up. Lob City was really fun, but not really. It it was a team that felt like it had a little bit of a ceiling. Chris Paul stomping around, arguing arguing with the refs, ordering his, his teammates around. Everybody's arguing about every call. There was a weird vibe to those teams. I would say out of the out of the 15 Clipper seasons I've I've had, the two most fun ones, 2006, when they improbably almost made the Western Finals, the same year that Kobe averaged 35 a game. And that was really the one time the Clippers and the Lakers were humming 
at the same time. And they weren't even really like the Clippers. Nobody really expected them to make the finals, even though they actually came a little bit closer. I think people remember. And the Lakers team was basically just Kobe and a bunch of schmucks. So that was the one time where they were pretty equal. They were pretty good. And the games had a real energy. So that season was fun. And I think the first and second Lob City seasons were just immensely fun because Blake was so goddamn entertaining back then when he was just trying to jump over everybody and dunk on everybody. Then when they when they kind of settled into contender status, the Donald Sterling stuff happened. The games were, you know, they were playoff basketball games. I think the most memorable one was probably when they beat the, uh, the Warriors in a game seven. That one was great. They beat the Spurs. I think in 2015, that game was great. The uh, collapse against the Rockets in game six. Like they definitely had their share of awesome moments, you know, and there were some bad ones too, like Oklahoma City in 2014 uh, when Chris Paul really choked. And I think it was a game four and uh, a colossal choke actually. But, you know, they had some moments and I, I think they were a contender. I don't think... Um, Clipper fans will be bouncing their grandkids on their lap, telling them about all the great times. The point is, there's never been a Clipper team like this team, where they are the favorites to win the title. They have, in my opinion, the best player in the league. And there was a real energy in place that was, was compounded, tripled, doubled, multiplied, whatever verb you want to use, by the fact that the Lakers were there with LeBron and AD and half of the place was Laker fans and they were obnoxious because that's what they are. They feel like they own LA. They have no time for the Clippers. The Clippers are the little brother. They're the black sheep. And, you know, the energy was there from a half hour beforehand. You had a bunch of wealthy LA people sitting around courtside. Lots of like, you know, all the power agents, Patrick Weitzel, Larry Emanuel, Rich Paul, uh, a lot of celebrities. It was like, you know, a game that people wanted to be at and be seen at. And people wanted to see LeBron and AD together and they wanted to see Kawhi together. And if you were a Laker fan, you kind of wanted to lay the smack down a little bit. The people, the energy in the building, even in the pregame intros was great. Um, Kawhi tried to speak to all the Clipper fans before the game. I've never seen this before got drowned out by booze because there were so many Laker fans. I would say it was like 50-50. And all the Laker fans were booing. So here's poor Kawhi trying to say something nice to his new fan base, this team that he signed up for. And the fans are just drowning him out. So that was weird. That was awkward. I don't think Kawhi and Paul George fully understood or realized how few Clipper fans there were in Los Angeles. What's weird is Paul George is basically from here, so he should have known this, but I think they did think they were going to become a thing. And that still might happen, but I think what we saw tonight is just the Lakers' DNA is just so deep here. And, um, you know, there was never really a point when it felt like a Clipper home game. It felt a little bit more like a soccer match on a neutral field in a European city when there was just noise constantly, I actually kind of liked it. I got to be honest. Like I, I wish more basketball games were like this where people are rooting for both sides because I think what happens is people end up cheering and clapping and doing everything louder because they're trying to drown out the other side. Because I've always, I've always wondered what would happen if they had a finals 
at a neutral location, like what, like what we have with the Super Bowl, how would that play out over the course of the seven-game series? They would never have that. But the energy in the building resembled what the dream scenario that would be like. So anyway, uh, I wrote down some notes. It's really four things I want to cover. The first thing. So LeBron is the only guy I think left from the 2003 draft. He is definitely one of like the 10 oldest players in the league. And it hasn't really mattered from kind of an alpha dog when you go see him in person, who else is on the court. I mean, the best game I've ever seen anyone play in my life was game one of the 2018 finals in Golden State when he almost beat you know, an iconic Warriors team by himself and probably should have. And J.R. Smith blew it. This was the first time I've seen him a lot over the years. I don't know how many LeBron games I've seen in person, but it's a lot. It's dozens. And a lot of playoff games and finals games, stuff like that. He was the third best guy on the floor tonight. And it wasn't just that he didn't have a great game. He is the third best guy in this matchup. And that was the most glaring thing to me tonight, watching it. Davis is just in his prime. He's unstoppable. He wasn't even like that great tonight. He's unstoppable. He's going to get 27, 28, 30, 32, 36. He's just peak of his powers. He really is. Um, LeBron is not the peak of his powers anymore. He's still really good. He's incredibly smart. He has moments when it seems like he is the old athletic LeBron, but, um, there was a couple moments tonight. First of all, he was short, short, uh, short rimming uh, a bunch of different shots and just doesn't seem like he has his legs the same way. They were trying to play him at point guard. I don't know if athletically he can do that anymore. He might be able to do it for a couple stretches, but it really slowed their offense down. Um, and it made it seem like it just felt like an early 2010s kind of offense. You know, like in, in Frank Vogel, ironically, is their coach. It felt like a 2012 Pacers kind of offense. Like they weren't running a lot of high screens with AD and LeBron. Um, there wasn't a lot of ball movement at all. There's a lot of ISOs. And I think part of the reason is because LeBron is entering a different stage of his career athletically. And you could kind of feel it a little bit tonight. There was this one moment when Kawhi was on him that somebody threw a pass to LeBron. Kawhi tipped it and it went into the Lakers. It went into the Clippers side of the court. And LeBron and Kawhi went for the ball together and they were basically dead even. And Kawhi got the ball. And as you were watching it, this was the kind of play, you know, when you would see LeBron in person or you'd watch him on TV every night, there are these athlete plays that he would make where you would go, oh my God, that guy's the greatest athlete I've ever seen in my life. And these were the type of plays where if there was a loose ball and it was him versus somebody else, he was getting the loose ball. He was just, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I'm faster. I'm getting it. And Kawhi got the loose ball. And random moment in a game might not have meant anything, but it felt kind of significant because I just feel like he's a better basketball player because he is. Kawhi's the best player in the league. And what's crazy is we have to keep reminding ourselves of this. And it's like, uh, with Giannis, could he win the MVP again? Like, and he might. Giannis might be the best regular season 82-game player in the league. Kawhi is the best player in the league. Kawhi proved it last year. He did everything he needed to do tonight. And uh, he's just awesome. So 
my big takeaway driving home, I was thinking about, I was like, wow, I just went to a game. It was a regular season NBA game where LeBron was the third best guy in the game. Um, which brings me to Kawhi. Also was thinking about this during the intros. There's been some dark Clipper years. There's no question. And Kawhi is by far the best Clipper ever. I guess the competition would be Blake Griffin 2015. When by the end of the 2015 playoffs, he was one of the three or four best guys in the league. Chris Paul. Um, Elton Brand in 06 was really good. Go back and look at his numbers. He was like 25 and 11 and was really unstoppable that year. <sighs> Who else? Bob McAdoo, if you go back to the Buffalo Braves. Danny Manning for like a cup of coffee when his knees were healthy. Bill Walton, barely. This is not... Not like an awesome group of greatest Clippers of all time. They've certainly never had anybody who was one of the best 25 players ever, which Kawhi is. And he is the best player in the league right now, which they've also never had. And it was just kind of amazing. You know, we know he signed there. This has been a story since uh, beginning of July. But it was really weird to just be in the seats, the same seats you know, in the same section where like I was watching Zach Randolph and <laughs> Marco Yarich and uh, Quit Ross and Chris Kamen bowling over people and Mike Dunleavy trying to get fired for two years. And, uh, you know, Donald Sterling sitting there at midcourt, like the Prince of Darkness. And you just think like, holy shit, the Clippers fucking did it. They're the best player in the league. And then... Paul George on the bench in a tuxedo, not even ready to play yet. And it didn't actually matter. You watch the Clippers introductions and they, they do this every year. They introduce every guy on the team. You know, you're doing this in 2009 and it's like depressing. Here he is, Tim Thomas. <laughs> like, oh, great. Uh, it just would set the tone for like, wow, this year is going to suck. How am I going to get rid of my tickets? And that was a big thing. If you have Clippers season tickets, Part of having Clipper season tickets was trying to figure out how to get rid of 25 games because nobody wanted to go. People would be like, yeah, I'll go to the Cleveland game. But you'd be like, hey, what about the, uh, I got Charlotte on Sunday night. Any interest? I mean, honestly, you had a better chance of getting pulled out of the stands and playing in the Clippers-Hornets game than actually going to the Clippers-Hornets game in like 2010. So, you know, it's just been a long run. And, and a lot of the people who are in my side, I'm in section 101. A lot of those people, they it's the they call them the 84s, that section, because when they move from San Diego to LA, you know, a lot of the people who are in that section have been going since 1984 and have seen a lot of dark shit. And even like, you know, kind of the highlight of Lob City when it seemed like that team had a chance to win the title those couple of years, the Donald Sterling thing happens. And then they really have a chance to go make the Western finals in 2015. They just completely choke. And, uh, you know, they've had some rough times. So the way this has played out where they're having the intros and the guys are actually good. And it's like, oh, Jamichael Green's your 10th guy. That guy's actually a competent uh, playoff player. Kawhi's incredible. He had a couple of moments today. I was looking over on the bench and, the guys on the bench are, he's Kawhi's making one of his like crazy followers and 
you look over the bench and they're just like laughing. They're like, oh my God. Because they're watching it every day too. They know how good he is, but they're just like laughing and in awe of just how crazy good that guy is. Um, so I noticed that and I noticed uh, one other Clippers thing, like, you know, Mo Harkless is kind of the, the guy I didn't really spend enough time thinking about this summer for them. And you watch it in the games, athletic swingman has been in a lot of big games in Portland and he has a, you know, up and down history with them. And I, I think Portland was okay moving on with them. And sometimes that happens, especially with swingmen. Sometimes these guys get older and they kind of settle into what they are and that's when you want them. And it might be happening with him because I always thought they would be, be using his cap, his cap kind of a uh, figure to maybe swing for Andre Iguodala or whoever. And I'm actually, I think they keep him. I actually think they should keep him. Um, because I think he can help them. I think he's athletic. He can make threes. He makes corner threes. And uh, and he's been in big games. He wasn't afraid. I noticed that. Um, Patrick Patterson was the weak link tonight, but Paul George is going to grab all his minutes. Shame it's not totally ready, but I think maybe he can get there by the end of the season. God forbid he played in the world championships and got some experience. He, he definitely, uh, definitely was not that reliable tonight. Uh, but you know, Beverly and Harrell and Lou Williams, they come in, the Lakers go up 13 two, and they, you know, three and a half minutes in the game, Rivers brings in Harrell and Williams and those guys play great together. And I think what's interesting about this team, especially when Paul George comes back, it's not just the defense and the energy and the fact that they have these different dudes that can swing the momentum in a game just with hustle or a hustle play or a play on D or block, uh, steal, charge, whatever. Um, but they have different guys who can take over the game for like three, four minutes. You can see it tonight. Like Kawhi had his little moment. Lou Williams had his little moment. Harrell has his little, like he all of a sudden a couple screen rolls. And uh, it's a really good team. I, I don't regret picking them to beat these Sixers in the finals. Um, and when Paul George comes back, holy shit, because there's some lineups that they're going to be able to throw out when he comes back. Like I think they'll play Harkless and Paul George and Kawhi all together. You know, play those three with Harrell and with Beverly, and just that 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 defensively, they're going to be like a vice. That's going to be crazy. I'm really excited to watch the different lineups. It was also cool to see Ty Lue and Doc Rivers together because they coached together way back when, and it just seemed like they had the right vibe. On the flip side, the Lakers thing. Poor Frank Vogel, kid. I had a friend of mine who was at the game who was watching. He was like, there's about six times today where Jason Kidd started, forgot that he wasn't the head coach and was like getting up and doing stuff. And the vibe was definitely a little strange. They, the offense they were running, I didn't love. They have some huge personnel issues, obviously, where you have your two best guys play the same position, LeBron and AD. They tried to fix that tonight by having LeBron play point guard. Good luck with that for a hundred games. Um, when Kuzma comes back, I feel like he's also a four. They missed him tonight. Um, Danny Green guy had 28 points. They still lost, but double figures. The thing is the drop off and it, we, I'm sure you could see it on TV, but you could really feel it in person. The drop off from Danny Green as the third best Laker tonight to the rest of the guys they trotted out was brutal. Like Bradley wasn't even that bad tonight. He made a couple shots. He was trying to chase Lou Williams around on defense. He was at least pressuring the ball a little bit, but 
if they're going to have him as the point guard, teams are going to figure that they're going to figure that out really quickly and start pressing him full court because he can barely handle the ball. If if you're counting him as your point guard, good luck. But the drop off, man, they had. You think? I mean, look at this. Javale plays 17 minutes. It's about 15 minutes too long. Bradley plays 24. Jared Dudley played 13 minutes. He was minus 20. I don't love plus minus, but the minus 20 feels right if you if you watch the game. Troy Daniels played 16 minutes. Quinn Cook played 17 minutes. Dwight Howard played 19 minutes. Hold that thought. And then the coup de gras. Contavious Caldwell Pope. 27.0 minutes is just a complete non-threat offensively. And I think you could feel LeBron. LeBron can't hide it sometimes when he just, he knows his teammates aren't good. And there was a couple moments where Davis was sitting and he was just out there with four random dudes. It'd be like Dwight Howard, Quinn Cook, whoever. And he, his body language would just change. And you could see him, the same body language that he would have last year. It's just like, oh man, I do not want to buy into these dudes. It's almost like he's signaling Rob Palenka. Hey man, feel free to make some moves. Cause this sucks what we got going right now. Um, anybody who thinks this current iteration of the Lakers is a finals team is smoking something. So bring Rondo back. Great. Okay. Well, that's another guy who can't shoot. Um, you bring Kuzma back. Okay. So I got LeBron Davis, Kuzma and green as my four best players. Three of those guys play the same position. What am I going to do with the guard spot? I'm not really that athletic. LeBron and Davis are my two athletes in that group. I don't have like the energy hustle guy in there. I don't, I, I just don't like the makeup of that. I'll be really interested to see what they do. I, my assumption would be they'll play Bradley with Kuzma, Green, LeBron, and AD, which now puts AD at the center where he doesn't want to play. I guess. Hey, is that going to work for four rounds? It feels like this team has more trades to make, I guess is my my bigger point. Um, they're playing Avery Bradley and KCP in crunch time tonight. I've never understood the KCP. I don't get it. If somebody could explain it to me, awesome. But um, it feels like this team is a work in progress. I Listen, I don't want to overreact after one game. Just from what I watched for four quarters, I was like, this doesn't feel like this is their finished team. We're going to see some moves and some trades and and uh, all kinds of stuff. I will say, though, the one thing with um, with LeBron, it does seem like him and AD have latched onto each other. And LeBron does this. You know, he de- definitely with Wade, he did this. There's been some dream teams when he's latched onto the teammates. Like you can tell when he's like, that's my dude. That's my guy. You know, he's almost like a wrestler who needs the tag team partner to really, really blossom. Um, and him and Davis were just locked up tonight. Um, there was a lot of talking and it was kind of like it was those two. And then it was the other 10 guys. Not sure that's going to work long-term, <laughs> but uh, it seems like they bought into each other. And my question is, how long will they buy into the supporting cast? And then what do they do with this offense? Because the offense I saw tonight should not be the offense. I they I would I would have a lot more motion, a lot more high screens and stuff like that. All right, last topic. 
The Dwight Howard thing was just bizarre. I don't know how you guys felt about it on TV. He's lost, it appears to be 40 pounds. It's just a lot. I, I This was a guy who was awe-inspiring how huge he was. I remember going to a game in, I think, 2012, the Super Bowl, the Pats, Giants, the second Super Bowl in Indianapolis. And me and Jacobian House went to an Orlando game. And we sat underneath the basket. And Dwight Howard was just a mammoth specimen of a human being. And then the game tonight, he looked like a guy who had been living in Redondo Beach on the water, you know, doing a vegan diet and doing hot yoga every day. He was like skinny guy. And he was wearing a uniform that wasn't baggy or anything. It was actually kind of, it seemed like he was borrowing Avery Bradley's uniform. It was, it was tight. And the way he played, he played like he was, a second round pick from Senegal who was still learning how to play basketball, but the one thing he could do is sprint from end to end. I've never, I've never been more riveted by anything. I, he only played, I think like 19 minutes tonight. I could have watched Dwight Howard for all 48. I just couldn't get over it. This guy, I think he made six straight all NBA first teams. He was the best center in the league for basically the entire decade. He, beat LeBron in the Eastern Conference Finals. This is only 10 years ago. He's not like 45 or anything. I think the weirdest thing is usually when centers get old. Yeah, I remember Artis Gilmore in the Celtics in the mid-80s and his nickname was Rigor Artis. When centers get old, they just kind of mummify. You saw that with Shaq. You know, you saw that with Kareem. Like pick a center, Hakeem Olajuwon in his last year in Toronto. They just kind of mummify and this was the opposite. This turned into like vegan hot yoga guy who completely lost all of his explosiveness. He got stuffed on the rim. He's doing the other thing that Shaq always talks about or Barkley. No, I'm sorry. It's Barkley. When uh, he talks, when centers get old, when they have the ball around the rim, they bring it down first, which is a great point. That was what Dwight does. He has the ball around the rim. In the old days, you just like go and stuff it. doesn't matter. I don't care who's in my way. Now he brings it down. He thinks about it because he's not the same guy anymore. And what's really hilarious is there was this two, three week window here in LA on local radio and local TV and, and you know, the, all the bet message boards, stuff like that, where they were like, Dwight Howard, I don't know. This might be something. And Rosella and I, we were making fun of it last week at the over. It was like, oh yeah, it's something. All right. It's going to be called Dwight Howard has been waived by the LA Lakers in December. It was riveting to watch. I've, I just, I've never seen this version of a washed up NBA star before. I've seen mummified version. I've seen lost seven steps version version. I've never seen, I've, this is basically, I mean, he's called himself Superman. He's Clark Kent now. He's, he's lost all of his muscle. What happened to it? I'll let that question hang in the air for a while. Yeah, I'm going to let it hang for a couple seconds. Yeah, two more. Yeah. Need an investigation on this one. Anyway, quite a game. And I think the cool thing is we're going to get more of these. This is a great rivalry. And this season is going to be awesome. We have seven awesome rivalries. Like Celtics Sixers is tomorrow night. That's going to be fantastic. Every net Celtics game is going to be great. The Warriors against the Rockets will be great. 
Rockets, Lakers, that's going to be awesome. Clippers, whoever. Denver, does Denver need a rival? I guess Denver-Portland is, is that technically a rivalry? It's like a rivalry of fan bases who feel like they're being taken for granted as contenders. Um, great season. This was a great night. I really enjoyed it. All right, we're bringing Edward Norton in in one second. First, you've got to check out the Ryan Rossillo podcast. Every Monday, Chris Long is on there. It's great. He's had Scott Van Pelt on there. He's had all kinds of people on there. He's creating weird Wednesdays. That's going to become a thing. Every Wednesday is going to get a little weird. Remember, all you have to do, you can just say, hey, Google, play the Ryan Rossillo podcast. All right, here's the latest episode of the Ryan Rossillo podcast, week seven recap with Chris Long. That was easy. Hey, Google, pause podcast. I already listened to that episode, but I'm looking forward to listening to every episode of the Ryan Rossillo podcast as soon as they pop up. All right, coming up, Edward Norton for the first time ever. He's got a new movie coming out. Here we go. Edward Norton is here. Been pushing for this since 2007. You're a hard man to get. You don't do a lot. I've been pushing since 2002. You're a hard man to get. Hard man to get. You're here now. I've been waiting for this invite. This is it. We're announcing Rounders 2. <laughs> it's done. We found Worm. He was Koppel, in Austria. Koppelman and Levine will, uh, have not been told yet that that they've all, that the script is already written. You've basically said I'm in. Everybody involved has. Damon's uh, in. Yep. Because I asked him last year and he said he was in. Yep. Koppelman and Levine are in. This is it. We're ready to go. Someone, we need a detective to sniff out what what where's the log jam? Well, I think do you know my 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 I have the script. I gave it to them for free. Really? Because I like those guys. <laughs> no, it's just like Mike McDee, he goes to Vegas and then poker takes off and he becomes like one of the main guys. Right. And what happens to Worm? Worm comes back into his life because now where's Mike Worm McDee been, is though? we don't know. It's unclear. Well, see, okay, he's so wearing I, the same jacket. Of course, because I'm selfish and I want to know. Where, what are my lines? <laughs> what your motivation yeah, is? Well, you no, know, I want to know literally how big is my part. Yeah. So, no, I'm kidding. I, I I said to Brian and David one time, there's no way that Worm wasn't involved somehow in the credit default like swaps. <laughs> he has to have been. He has to have been doing something dodgy in, in some form of like, you know, the finance bubble. Would you rather play a guy like that or a guy who's the hero? Um, I... Um, what's the language? Uh, we can swear. You can we can swear do f bombs. Okay. No, whatever I you want. only want to quote the movie, but yeah, I always say that there are certain certain things you just want to work with certain people, and you do it because you're like, I did a movie with Robert De Niro and Marlon Brando. It was Brando's last film, and I I did it for those three reasons. It yeah. was Robert De Niro and Marlon Brando. I'm not going to not do that movie, right? It was a heist picture. We tried to make it really good, but mostly it's like. I want to be on that poster, you know yeah. what I mean? But um, but Rounders, I think we all had the experience when we read it. Like when I read the script and Mike says like, um, you know, Worm says something like, yeah, what did I ever do to that guy? And Mike says, you fucked his mother. And he says, well, she was a good looking older woman. I was like, I'm doing this movie, right? <laughs> Literally that exchange. I was like, I'm doing this movie. I love this guy. Like this is, uh, this is really funny, you know? And, um, does Rounders get made now? It's a really good question. Because I guess like once Damon got a little cachet and you got a little cachet yeah, we at had, the same we, time. We, we were bringing, we we brought kind of the like, hey, these are the, the coming, the young Turks. They, they, they're, and, um, and then, but you know what? 
it was also done with sense. The whole movie, yeah. we all did the movie for no money, essentially. The whole movie cost 13 million bucks, I think, right? Wow. And if you do that, and 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 if God, and if we say in that moment, hey, we're not looking like to to to, to lever our whatever we've done into the biggest paycheck we can get. We want to make one of these movies. And then Malkovich and Turturro and Martin Landau and all these people come onto it. Suddenly, like you've got like the dream, which is like you're making a movie of a certain kind that you wanted, that you came up loving. But nobody's like, you know, no, nothing's going to the Titanic's not going to sink over it. Right. And so yeah. you can have fun. You can go for the, you can go for the thing the way it's supposed to be without just like macro corporate pressure, like down on your head. Right. And, and in a funny way at that exact moment, that was that exact moment where frankly, what, you know, just to give credit where credit is due Miramax in that era had rewrote like the way people were approaching these things. They said, Hey, look, we're going to get auteur driven things and we're going to get great actors and we're going to get people and we're going to put them together around projects and we're going to make them for reasonable amounts of money and spend smart and make money. And the whole industry had to change. The whole industry started Miramax like labels. All the old studios started their version of Fox Searchlight or what, you know, because it was like, holy crap, you can make margins in these kinds of films. And Rounders was right at that moment when people are going, how the hell did they get all those people together and everything? But it was a great way to work. It and was yet, a great and way yet to work. ironically, the movie bombed. It had a slow burn because it yeah. didn't do well in the theaters and then belatedly did really well. And by the way, in the era too, where the industry had not been asleep at the, you know, later they were so asleep at the switch, they handed off the entirety of the home video value to a a company that had never existed called Netflix, right? right? They they literally they literally snoozed away their entire secondary distribution right. business, right? But in those days, if Rounders, you know, was a little anemic at the box office or not what they hoped or whatever, it didn't matter because they owned that long tail life, yep. right? And they could do great on it, and they did. Same with Fight Club, which Fight Club was a a much bigger bomb at the box office relative to was it? It I much bigger oh, than wow. Rounders. Fight Club cost 68 million bucks. I think it did like 35 at the box office, right? And God, it, I felt like that movie was an event. It was an event, but it was a, it, it was an event that unfolded over a longer period of time than a studio accountant would like to see on opening weekend. And it was a slap in the face. I think everybody felt like disappointed, a little stung, whatever. It got booed at the Venice Film Festival. And it was kind of this thing of like, wait a minute, we're Brad and I honestly like smoked a joint and watched the movie in the back of the Venice Film Festival. And at the in the dark, at the end, people were booing. And Brad turned to me in the dark and goes, That's one of the best movies that we will ever be in. And I felt the same, you know, yeah. like we we had a conviction, but but it took a minute, it took a minute to form the best thing in the world, which is that direct conversation with the audience it was intended for and what you're saying was an event was in fact just this pause it needed for the word to get out and people to find it and lo and behold that movie financially ultimately did very very well because it was the era where they were selling their own dvds and not you know stream you know getting pennies on the dollar well I was and, thinking so, and so it so 
it was it was a it was a cool time because in a lot of ways if you were willing to come in with rounders and make it in the right way yeah which we were you, 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 it was it was fine and it, i mean it was never more fun there's you can't have more fun making a movie than we had making that movie it it was everything we all got into the stupid trade of the whole thing to do you know what i mean it was like I have I rem, I said this when I talked to the the guy for the, oral the ringer history, for yeah. that oral history. It's like I remember standing on Eighth Avenue in the cold with Matt, Ted Demi, Koppelman and Levine, um, and Martin Landau's like telling stories about James Dean. Yeah, and you're just going like, "Don't anybody wake me up!" Like this is <laughs> this is this is this is too fun, you know. Well, I was thinking about those first five years you have in Hollywood because you were a stage actor first and then primal fear happens and immediately becomes, you were immediately thrown into the whole mainstream. Yeah. In those five yeah. years, it was such a fun time for film. The movie you just did, Motherless Brooklyn, which took forever to make, um, is kind of a throwback to that era where movies like that were actually made. Where Yeah, it's, I mean, I... Uh... You I, talked I, a lot of good actors into being in yes, it. It yes. doesn't cost no. That's true. A that's crazy true. amount of money, and it was like a huge passion project. Yes, I, all that's true. I I think um, look, I love, and I I think a lot of people love, you know, L.A. Confidential or um, Chinatown's a tricky movie. I I love Chinatown, but it's it's a it's a dark and strange and hard movie. It's it hasn't <laughs> aged great. It's it the movie parts age great. The themes are. Oh yeah, it's, rougher it's, it's in very 2019. Dark. Yeah, yeah. I, I I agree, but yeah. but I I do think that that um, I sometimes think it almost gets underestimated how much audiences enjoy a, a that kind of classic film that takes them into an era with no tongue in cheek, no no like wink wink to like fifties irony or you know even like Mad Men is a little bit like. It's 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 a little bit knowing, right? I yeah. what what was great about LA Confidential as like a period kind of noir thing was it was like, no, no, no. These are real, like weighty actors playing this totally straight. The product it looks great, the music was great. And you kind of like, I couldn't tell you what the plot of LA Confidential was today, but you were just like five minutes in, you were like, I'm I'm in for the drift on this one because I just like being here. Yeah. I'm just I'm happy to be here because they're doing it well, like really well, you know? And and I I think um Mother's Book and that, that was a big part of what was in my head because New York, New York in that era was an incredible. It was in, 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 in there was an incredible stuff going on between what was going on in jazz clubs, the the changes that were taking place um in the city, the these deep dark things if you know if LA's deep dark secret is that it, it's built on stolen water you know like what what New York's deep dark secret is that in 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 the exact era when everyone sort of thinks of as the post-war democratic utopia like there was a guy running New York City who was literally more of an autocrat he he, he was a dictatorial autocrat like Darth Vader who was a racist and he 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 had an uncontested power in New York, an unelected guy who ran the city and defined New York's infrastructure with his racism in ways that it still can't solve today. It still can't figure out, you know, he wouldn't let trains be in the LIE corridor. He wouldn't, he built, he tore down black neighborhoods and built the projects, which became the worst slums in the world. And 
he he literally like made the Dodgers move to L.A. I mean, he, this guy was a dark, dark figure of imperial power, and he did damage that we still can't fix. Um, and people just don't even know this. They don't even know that this happened. So it's um, like it, you know, to me, it was ripe. It was ripe to to have one of those movies where you just kind of like you go you go for the ride through that era. The directing yourself thing. I know this is a boring, hacky question, but I'm, I just think that's so impressive when people can run a movie, but then also inhabit a character at the same time. And I think it's almost, for lack of a better word, weird. It's weird. I, I, it's, yeah. a, it's a weird talent to have where you can be like, um, it is. It's I'm uh, Mr. Norton here directing everybody, but now nah, I'm going to be this character again. It's schizophrenic. Um, in a way it's, it's not, it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It, 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 it does, um, it is illogical because it's very different sides of your brain. Um, yeah. and ping ponging between them, I think, uh, is it's suboptimal for both jobs in a way. I was going to say, what's is, does it lower the ceiling of each job? So you're looking at like an A minus max <laughs> for both of them. And that's I hope it? not. I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, to me, it's, it's one of those things that I, you know, you look at like going all the way back, like Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, the guy was 25 yeah. years old. He made this massive American film, very talky film about the American character. You know, he did weird shots. He did all this kind of stuff. And he played a guy from age 20 to his death, you know? Right. It's ballsy. It's just, it's ballsy as hell. It was weird. It was misunderstood at the time, but it became like one of those things that everyone looked at. And that inspired like Warren Beatty, like, made reds and people told Warren told me that people told him nobody in the world wants to see a three hour movie about American socialists with documentary <laughs> footage from right. the era. You are going to your whole career that you've built. You're going to flush on this. And he was like, you know what? Like, it's the movie I want to see. Like, I want to see this movie. So, you know, it seems like so many of off. these actors hit that point where they're just like, fuck off. I'm doing this. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and also Clint Eastwood and Unforgiven. Kevin Costner, Dances with Wolves. Yeah. And I'm not even commenting on the films, although these are all really good films. Ben Affleck did it with Argo, you know? And yeah. he did it, he did it with a lot of people throwing shade on him. Yeah. Like when when Ben did that, I was like on my feet. I was like, that's fucking right. I was like, you I it's so great when people do it because in some ways, I think at a certain moment, if you've done it long enough, you get you get a sense of like what the nature of the audience's favorite relationship with you is. And part of those things, films we all just named is in some ways it's an actor going, hey, there's a story I really get and I fit in it. Yeah. It's it's in the sweet spot for me. And, and you know, I know enough now to know how to do this. And sometimes something very special emerges from that because I think, um, you know, it's it's... I, I, who knows why, but, um, and you know, by the way, my friend Liz Banks is, do, she's like one of the only women in Hollywood directing the movies that she's in now. And she's killing it, like killing it. Do you, you know? feel like you get lost in the movie where even when you're not on the set, it's just, you're the only one who can see not only the movie, but the the main performance in it. The, the, like, no, can the, you the, like watch a Yankee game at seven 30 when you're going through all this stuff? Yeah. I put on like, you know, I put on like the documentary about Quincy Jones when I go, just so I'm like right. 
chill out. Let me hear some good music and chill out, right? But I, part of it is part of it is having pe- people around you. Anybody who does this will say the same thing, which is you, 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 you know, you say something completely crazy. You go, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna make a, a big scale American epic about New York in the '50s. It's not gonna be a little diorama. We're gonna have like car chases through Manhattan. We're gonna shut down 20 blocks. We're gonna shoot in big spaces and big places. We're gonna have a big a list cast, Bruce Willis and yeah. Willem Dafoe and all these people. And we're going to do it all for 26 million bucks. And, oh, my character has Tourette syndrome and obsessive compulsive disorder. And like most people's eyes cross and just go like, <laughs> like we're in the Edward Norton business generally on this one, we're taking a pass. You know what I mean? But then you get like a great DP and a great, you get like those actors say yes to doing it for no money. Like all my cast did this for scale did me a huge solid, you know what I mean? And you get these people that start levering their talent against sort of this crazy thing you've set up. And all of a sudden it's like becoming possible, you know? And there's like a a moment, there's kind of this tipping moment where the whole thing is like, oh my God, like, what are we doing? They're going to take away my license. This is all thing. And suddenly there's like someday you walk in and you realize like, I got one of the great cinematographers of all time shooting this. And he's done all of Mike Lee's films in, 45 days and he he can do this and you start seeing like other people are really bringing a game and you start going wow they're making me look like I know what I'm doing you know and you start you, you're delegating you're delegating to really good people and then even when you got to act in it you know you can turn and look at that cameraman and go um, are we good like do I I don't I can't manage this right now are right. we good we've talked about it we know what we're going for and if he goes thumbs up like you're like we got it we're moving and when you start having that kind of that that's how it works it's like you're not alone at the table it's like you're you've got a team and that team is what pulls it off and um you you're playing a guy with Tourette's and OCD in (laughs) 2019 when everybody on the internet is going to come after you if you don't hit those two things correctly and you had to have been wary of that uh, to it to a degree, except that over time, you know, talking to people who have that condition, it it, it came from a book uh, that was a very different plot than my movie. It's set in con- modern times. Yeah, the book, but the character is the same: a detective with Tourette syndrome and obsessive compulsive disorder. People love the book. What I found was people with Tourette syndrome love the book. They love it. They love like the humanity. They, they think it's authentic. They love that you're inside his head, knowing him in his full like depth as a person while you watch his condition cause him all kinds of problems that are funny, that are that are painful. They love the complex presentation of him. And and I knew the other thing is that Tourette's syndrome is it's a wild thing in the sense that some some people have like not they, they they blink compulsively you wouldn't even know yeah you know or they they like you probably have known someone who seems like they're always like cracking their neck but they might have mild Tourette's you know what I mean all the way up the spectrum to people who have the vocal component where they shout or, or compulsively say a word over and over again in the middle of conversation or like the one that's sort of the cliche they they scream like X-rated or really offensive things. Yeah, which is which is actually 
not at all the majority of people. Some people have com- remember the remember Chris Jackson, the basketball player. Yeah, he had Tourette syndrome. I remember seeing him in person; it was he, mesmerizing. He, and and I in the film, the thing of touching the touching the shoulder of someone else compulsively. He I took that off him because he he talked about it in this one documentary and talked about how his his impulse to tap people, even when he was defending people in the films, you can see him doing it. Yeah. Um, but he he also had talked about how when he was young. And it was coming on him. He, it was paralyzing because he 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 couldn't leave uh, the free throw line until he heard ten that went through the net and sounded right. And that's why he was like, what? He was like a ninety eight point five percent free throw shooter or whatever. Right. And he during games when you watched him, I'd never seen anything like this before. Where he had his process that he was going to stick to, but there's a game going on with nine <laughs> other people and a clock yeah. and you know his free throw line. It, everything had to be the same on the free mm-hmm. throw shot, no matter what. And, you know, you felt bad for him, but it was also kind of weirdly, like, courageous to yeah. watch this dude battling this. Well, and, and also, then, there, as as there's a trumpet player that, you know, Michael K. Williams uh, plays who who says to my character, like, you know, your head—basically, he says, your head is like mine. This is—that's how jazz works, too. It's like you can't stop. Yeah. And some people call it a, a gift, but it is a brain affliction, right? It, he's saying, mu- you know, musical obsession is a gift, but— it is a, a brain affliction too. And, and I think that there's, that's to me part of the beauty of like an, anybody and the things they struggle with. There's often like weird gifts in it, even though it's a struggle. And he was, you know, he was a great free throw shooter because of the same yeah set of obsessions. And that, that too, I put in the film because I love the idea that until something sounds right, you can't stop doing it. And so there's that one scene where, like when the blonde girl hits on my character at the bar, he he, it goes disastrously because yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he can't light her cigarette without blowing out the match because it doesn't sound right. And 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 you know I, I I thought the idea of someone who the what they what they deal with is way more extreme than what you or I deal with, but but you still identify you identify with like the isolation you identify with, oh, everybody can identify with like feeling misunderstood, feeling underappreciated or, or, or taken for granted. And, you know, not, or even, even the way you get in your own way, but it's like, and, and, and we don't all have like Tourette syndrome. We're not all like autistic, like Rain Man, but there's something you still, with those characters, like Matt's, you know, Matt's movie, Goodwill Hunting, right? Which is a great example of that to me. He's he's a working class kid. He's got a chip on his shoulder. He's got anger problems. He's got all kinds of problems and ways he's getting in his own way. But he has this thing in his head, you know, and and he's got to he's got to rise in the film. He's got to like kind of get over his own like barriers right. to maximize the 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 talent that he's got and that and I think we like those movies we like we like underdogs we like to watch an underdog get there because somewhere down inside it goes a we feel good about ourselves for rooting for him but also we kind of go like hey if he can if he can get there I can get I can get there in some way you know what I mean you mentioned the New York part of this movie you made twenty fifth hour I think it was you were making it in 02 or when? 01? It, it Not ended, 01 because... It was no, after no, we 9-11. It, we, yeah, we made it in the... Um, 
we made it in the early summer of O2. Yeah, I think it was right. like the first movie shot in New York. Well, that but that's that's become its attack. legacy where it's become it's kind of like a post 9-11 movie and it has this added weight to it. Like when you watch it now where it yeah. really feels like it's very melancholy. It's good. But it's I do people ask you about that movie because it feels like that has become a very, very New York movie. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I a, a lot of people, I think, rightly think it's one of Spike Lee's better films, you know, and I, I, I think it, I have it in the top three for me. Yeah. I mean, he he, you know, I can't say enough about Spike. Spike. Spike is misunderstood. Spike. Spike is a person who because his personality is so big. And because he can say very provocative and iconoclastic things, it it almost masks what a what an obsessive um, craftsman he is, and and also I think how much compassion is actually in his movies. He, he it's almost like people relate to Spike, and and it affects the way they look at the films. But but he that guy. That guy is one of the best prepared directors that I have ever worked with, ever. Phil Hoffman and I were both obsessed. You know, I mean, like, Do the Right Thing was one of the most important films of, like, our growing up. You know, right. I mean, I think that was one of the movies, if you went to public school and grew up in a city. When I saw that movie, it was like someone set a hand grenade off in the theater. Like, you yeah. know, the, when he pushed in on people and they're screaming their inner monologue about, you know, race and... It was like, oh, my, like nobody was saying those things. And Chuck D on the soundtrack singing, you know, Elvis was a hero to most. He never meant shit to me. It was like people's minds were melting. You know, it was like yeah. you forget, like when you go back and you realize like, like how, what a, what a grenade that film set off in terms of the conversation. It, it, it And he was doing whatever the hell he wanted. He was like talking to the camera. He was like. It was like all Spike, you know? And he had characters in that movie that I just had never seen in a movie before. Never, never. And he was in the movie. Like, yeah. And he's funny in the movie, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, and 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 language that was like, became part of the language. That's to the curb, Mookie, you know what I mean? It's like, there was stuff that, it, it was it was so significant. And, um, and yet, like, the end of the movie is really this, question mark it's this like he puts up the quote from martin luther king saying violence is not a path and then he puts up the malcolm x quote saying sometimes violence is very legitimate and he just puts it right in your lap and goes what is your active thought about this not i'm going to answer this for you not i have an answer but we have to talk about this yeah you know and that is that's like maturity i mean that's like real that's like actually doing something as a filmmaker. He made people talk about one of the things we don't like to talk about, you know, and people talk about it more be, because of it. You know what I mean? And and it was kind of like. When you did that movie with him, he was, you know, that's he was almost like an athlete who had played in the NBA for a few seasons. Yeah. Like, all right, I know everything that I'm doing at this point. Yeah. He, he made that movie in 26 days. I've never. Jill uh, and I looked at each other and were like. How is that even possible? We're gonna make, and he did it six weeks of rehearsal, like a play. Every shot planned and boarded and listed down in the thing. You've never seen a director move through a film like he did on that. I Phil, at one at one point, Phil and I were uh, we were just sitting there. We were like, "This is heaven. This is like, this is like the way this is what we wanted to do." And with the, like one of the masters, and um, it, it it was just great. But also like 
He Got Game. Like, He Got Game is... He Got Game is one of the best movies ever made about sports and money and America. Like, it, it's so... That movie's so masterful. It's like people don't even appreciate, I think, how great that movie is. You worked with Phil Hoffman. He was he was pretty well known and successful at that point. But oh, yeah, he was like he was still the arrow was still pointing up. What do you remember about working with him? Well, we we kind of came up in New York or in the same era. We were both like building theater companies and um you know, he was like a, a real New Yorker. I was too. And, uh, you know, he, he was one of those guys that in a way he started to register, get work and stuff more than earlier than any of us. Like he's like a son of a woman. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. And, but like, like my, the people I sort of, a, a, you know, like Mark Ruffalo and Bobby Cannavale and Sam Rockwell, like there was a lot of people I, I, you know, new were in New York from the New York theater scene. They were good. And it was kind of like you you knew you could see people were getting their cracks at things. And it's exciting. But Phil, but in a lot of ways, I think Phil, Phil was kind of almost like more respected sooner by the rest of us. Yeah. You know, and it was like we it was kind of like the rest of the world was going to catch up um, eventually. But but he was, you know, by then he, he was doing PTA's movies and he was um, he was like one of the greats, you know, I think. Hadn't I don't know if he had done Capote at that point. Maybe maybe I think that was coming. That was coming. Yeah. But, but um that we did two films that year. We did Red Dragon and then Spike's movie. And then we were both he was directing a play and I was doing a play like right next to each other. It was really it was probably probably when I got to know him better even than I had known him. Um and uh uh just you know, I I think he was I think he was like it's stupid to say like the best in our, but he, he was one of the people in my cohort who I think every actor thought like he is, he's like, he's like he's, the high bar of, right. Of just quality and balls and guts. And, you know, he, the respect level for Phil was like infinite, you know, among actors. Damon, when he was on this pod, he told a story about, it was the same thing where you're saying now about how everybody knew each other or was aware of each other. But then these great roles would come up and everybody would go for the roles. And he was like, had this one movie, Primal Fear, came in and then this fucking guy, Ed Norton, and that guy from New York, and he stepped in and got that role. But he was like, we were all going for that role. And it seemed like there was a few of them in the 90s that it was just like, oh, that role. Yeah, those things. I mean, I but like, I think Matt and I were both up for... um you know, the the Grisham movie that Francis Coppola directed. The, oh, yeah, the Rainmaker. Rainmaker, right? Yeah. And Matt, you know, Matt, yeah, Matt got, got that one. one. And it was kind of like, fuck, oh, didn't work with Coppola. I went out to Napa. He cooked me dinner. I was like, well, yeah. I think I, I think I might get this, you know? And then it's like, what? No, you snake. You know what I mean? No, it's, and, but you know what's really funny? Honestly, like, like there's these moments you, you look at things and you go, yeah, that was, that was the right call. Like, like, Matt was like better in that than I would have been. Like he he was as as in many things. Like he's he's just great. You know he's great and he's got like you know it's like I think things kind of fall the way they are supposed to. You know you think every time or like nine out of ten times. Well, there's got to be somewhere it's like oh man. I mean, obvi uh, yeah. obviously the Wachowski should have put me in the Matrix, you know? Um, 
No, like I totally, yeah, you know, I'm totally kidding. Because literally, like I think Keanu Reeves is like you can't imagine that movie. You could have been John Wick. You, they, no. you get the whole arc. You no. be kung fu, um, Maven. Let's take a break to talk about the rewatchables on the Ringer Podcast Network. A podcast Edward Norton has not been on yet. He should come on at some point in his life. Halloween next week. Oh yeah, The Shining. It's coming. The Shining. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. This is happening. We have one, two, three, eight movies left the rest of the way on the rewatchables feed, including in mid-December, The Godfather 2. Oh, yeah, that's happening. Guess what else is happening over Thanksgiving vacation? Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, that's happening, too. Lots of good ones coming up. You can subscribe to the rewatchables on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can go back and just listen to old ones on the feed. Guess how many movies we've done so far? 90. We've done 90 movies over the last three years. And when we get to 100, the 100th episode is going to be the reheat with me, with me and Chris Ryan. We're doing heat for the second time. It's the first time we've ever done a movie again. That's happening Check it out. It is one of our most popular podcasts as well as uh, one of my favorite things to do. So the rewatchables subscribe right now. Back to Edward Norton. Can I ask you about yeah. the behind the head dunk in American History X? Is it behind the head? I think yes, it was. Yes, yes. You're going to call me out. What, 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 what do you want to know? Well. White men can't jump. Is that what you're implying? I, I think it could have been a one-hander okay. facing the rim. You really went for it. Plus, you were jacked. I, I was not as jacked as people think. We cast people very small around me. Uh, Is that true? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I'm six feet tall, but I, like, if I'm in shape, I weigh 155, 160. You know what I mean? So, I, I'm not, like, I, I, I put on, I probably put on, you know, I was probably 25 pounds up from what I normally am, but I'm still just not that big right. frame. But we literally did, you know, this is one thing I do. When, when you watch Tootsie and you don't really notice that Dustin Hoffman is a lot shorter than Jessica Lange, you, right. you learn things about the way camera can work. And, and, um, one thing you, you, if, if I'm in the frame, the camera doesn't see my size, it sees my shape, right? So you wanted if you have mass and you have definition, you can look really jacked, right? Um, but if you put a guy who's legit 220 next to me, I'm not going to look that big, right? And in fact, in the movie, the guy who actually, the, the skinhead in the prison who actually like rapes my yeah. character, that guy was like a Division One A football player. Oh, and, Jesus. And you can see. Yeah, yeah. He's like way bigger than me, like way bigger than me. But we cast in the film all around me, we cast like a lot of people who were more my size or thinner or smaller or whatever. And you, you feel it. You feel this like, you know, like Guy Tori, the great the actor who's in the prison with me, the guy he becomes friends with who kind of gets him over right. his hate in a lot of ways. Guy's really small. You know what I mean? So I look I look pretty big. But um, So nobody brings up the two-handed dunk to you? They, um, <laughs> yeah. Most people are kinder than you. They, 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 <laughs> I'm just no, curious. I'm, I'm totally curious. Kidding. No, you know what's really funny is um because the scene's good. There's good I basketball though, yeah, in that scene. Well, you're I, actually I play, impressive. I played basketball. I played, ba I played yeah, basketball I could tell. in high school. I, I was I was okay. You know, um, I, I I rode the bench, but I you know I I, I tried. 
Um, so I, I could fake it. And um, but we did something stupid, which is we we save that sort of because they wanted to put a one camera up on a crane. We were just like saving it for the end of the yeah. day. And my legs were like toast. But a, <laughs> but I so I knew I wasn't gonna be able to like dunk or anything. Right. So then they were like, it was basically like, look, the angles are gonna be from straight above and they're gonna be from way below, right? So they they literally were like, they were like, well, how low do you want it? Right. And of course your ego, like everyone's standing around, like listening. <laughs> and you go, and you go, and I and I made a terrible mistake. This is I go, I go, yeah, you know, like nine, nine feet, nine feet's good, whatever, whatever. So they put it nine feet, and I'm like. Donk, like ball into the rim, ball into the rim, ball. In. And then your legs are getting tired and tired. And then you go like, okay, lower, you know, knock it, knock it down a little bit. And, and then guys start going, oh, right. And, right, then right. Like, and I had to notch it down like three times. See, this is why yeah. I've always wanted to, um, my services as a sports movie scene consultant, <laughs> where anytime right. there's a scene like this, they just, they fly me in. I'm like, exactly. let's start Edward here at like eight and Eight feet two inches. Yeah, just get, for, let's no, get for, his confidence let, up. Let me tell you, what, we'll let me tell you what you should have said had you been there first. You should have gone clear the set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, clear the set. Well, Every, what, everybody who doesn't need to be here, get out of here. Like you know what I mean. Now put up some, uh, you know, now put up some scrims so that no one can see the costume. Set the camera. Now put the rim at seven feet. <laughs> seven like, feet. You know what I mean. Costa was here a couple months ago talking about for love of the game and how. The pressure of when you're pitching and not only is it the set, but they oh. had all these extras in the stands. But he said it was positive. Like he got adrenaline from it. But yeah, they don't, we don't think about this stuff when, no, when our favorite know. actors have to be in sports movie play. scenes. Well, what? that's it. By the way, he got game. You know, the lead is Ray Allen, right? Right. Ray, yeah. Ray plays the lead in, uh, I, I got in Spike. Spike's great basketball movie because he was like, you can't fake this stuff. He's got to be great. I had Spike and Denzel tell the same story about how Denzel snookered Ray Allen because they're supposed to play the game and it's supposed to be 10 nothing, And Denzel actually tries to score on him and scores the first four. And Ray didn't know what was going on and gets mad and the whole thing. Like That's great. Yeah, Spike used it against him. What did, do, I mean, how great is Denzel in that movie? I mean, oh, he's... That, it, it's like, that's it's, my it's, favorite Denzel. It's, it's... You know, but th by the way, like, I bet... I bet Matt, I feel like when we were doing rounders, one of the things I remember was, was sitting in the car in the cold. We were so obsessed with Midnight Run and we would like create these conversations yeah. out of Midnight Run dialogue and all these things. But also he does a really, really good Morgan Freeman impersonation. So we were like doing Glory. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're like, do I was like doing Denzel, like I love the 54th and he's like <laughs> right. doing Morgan Freeman, like, you know, and, um, but I think if if you had a bunch of us, I think a lot of people would say pound for pound, like Denzel's the best actor working in in the business because he he's a, one of the greatest stage actors in America, like with full stop, no question, classical, you know, Julius Caesar, the Iceman cometh. I mean, this guy has done like canonical, big classical theater, Fences by August Wilson, which- yeah. I would say him and Viola Davis in Fences was one of the greatest things I've ever seen on stage. I've wow. never seen an audience weeping like that. Like it it was so, the, the film was really good. On stage, I think it was one of the greatest performances I've seen on stage, that duet. Wow. And he, um, and he's a great character actor, right? Like, like you know, that one um, recently he did about the guy 
uh, oh, now I'm, I'm blanking on the name. Tony Gilroy's, uh, um, Dan Gilroy's movie. He's a lawyer. What's that? Yeah, Ro- Ro- yeah, Ro- Roman. Yeah, Roman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. I know. What you're about. I, I don't know why I'm forgetting the name, but but he he'll play like, you know, like Hurricane Carter or the character in uh, uh, in um. Well, Training Day, he becomes evil. Denzel. Yeah, yeah. And then he's this, you know, he's one of the biggest movie stars in the world. Like he he does he really does it all. You know what I mean? He's. We just taped the rewatchables. Which, but very, very few people are like that. And and I like right. I think Daniel Day Lewis is one of the greatest actors ever anything. But like it's he hasn't he hasn't like you know, who has who is who is one of the greatest stage actors in the country, a huge movie star, and actually like one of the really great film character actors too. Right. It's like there just aren't many people like that. It's like LeBron. Yeah, we just did a rewatchables about uh Remember the Titans. Mm. Which is just Denzel, like, I'm just going to be a movie star in this movie. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to coach, just do Denzel stuff and get out of here. And then, but the same year he did Training Day. Yeah. And could do both of us at the same time. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much always in with him. You know, I never, I don't really tire of it. You ever. never worked with him though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that five years, 95 to basically, let's say 99, 2000. Do you feel like that could come back? Because... You know, I, I think the narrative now is like, it's all going to be big movies and comic book movies, all this stuff. But I do feel like the streaming services, as they start pouring more and more money into how to differentiate themselves from each other, we're already seeing it with Netflix. I mean, mm-hmm. I know The Irishman was super expensive, but for the most part, I Not wonder- super, like insanely. Right. Much more than people are reporting. Yeah. But I wonder if we're heading toward an era where that 20 to $35 million movie could actually be like- a competitive advantage for Netflix when they're trying to go against HBO Max and Disney mm-hmm. Plus, and maybe this will come back. Maybe it's not going to take <laughs> six, seven years for you to make a movie like the one you made. Well, let's put it this way: if I want, if I had, if I'd pivoted and said I'm going to make this movie on Netflix, it wouldn't have taken me five, six years. Now I could right. made it. I could have made it like in. An, I could have had a yes in an afternoon. I think legitimately, you yeah. know what I mean. And, I, and I, I'm not saying that in a. In a knock way, I think it's. But I think that's I think that's a good thing. I think that's where we're heading. Me I don't too. know how long it's going to last, but it's going to reinvent I, I stuff. I have no. Um, if you're on the like, if you're on the creativity side of the equation, and you get into a headspace where you think you're entitled to someone else's money to make what you want to make, you you need to check yourself, like because yeah. you're not, you're not like. Other people are in the game of assessing the risks and rewards to them of like bankrolling your crazy notion and really just betting on you because these things are fundamentally just execution dependent and there is no way to guarantee it's going to come off, right? So you you can't ever lose a, a deep appreciation for um, the the risks and stresses entailed in people bankrolling your work, right? And I, like, I never feel that if someone's saying no and they're saying no politely, I get, you know, like, I I get it. Like, it, 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 you, you can't, like, go, like, how can they not, like, you know, make my 1950s... <laughs> Thing about a Tourettic detective, you know, right. I mean, to listen to how that sounds even, it's crazy, right? You just have to, like, but when the 
but the people who do step to the things you want to do, they they really become your like allies for life, you know, when it goes well and um, you feel lucky, right? Uh, but I think that, first of all, I I don't agree, I don't agree that it's not possible for sort of the traditional um, model of, of studios focused on theatrical distribution in theaters and then things to make original um, uh, adult movies without losing their shirt. But but some certain things are required and you have to be smart. Like Toby Emmerich, the guy who runs Warner Brothers, like he's, you know, he is a, has been a huge champion of my film. We had to, we sort of made it independently, but with a promise from Warner to distribute it and, and kick in at the end and everything. We had to raise a good amount of money independently, but he gave me a route to making it to get to make a very, you know, like personal and eclectic film um, that nobody could really say like, wow, how will that work? Like, will that work? Like sort of a Rain Man, yeah, Forrest yeah. Gumpy kind of a character in in a kind of a cool old fashioned Delhi Confidential kind of story. Will it work to have Tom York from Radiohead writing songs and Wynton Marcellus doing jazz? Will that mashup work, right? No, they couldn't know. And then basically it's like the way we did it, it it could work. You know what I mean? I mean, I mean, yeah, creatively, I got you. but we did it for a number. If you get a cast to say, we'll do this for scale and you make that movie for like 26 million net, it's a whole different equation than, than if everybody like maxes out on getting paid and a budget that blows up and all these things that that studios tend to do, right? So I, it's not out of the... And we have the uh, the smaller studios too, like the A24s. Yeah, yeah. And now my could my movie get made with an A24? Like, I, I don't think so because we did... we. It's a big movie, right? Yeah. It's a big movie. Um, and, and could you really do what we love about the LA Confidential type movies below a certain number? Probably not. Like I, I, I you're not, I'm not looking, you know, for extra credit, but like even making the movie we made at the scale, we made it for the number, for the number we made it for has been dropping the jaws of some of my, uh, I, some people don't believe me. I've had like filmmakers say like, what did you get 75, 80 days to do that? And you know, we did it in 46 and we're proud of it, right? Um, I think you can, I think you can, if you're, if everybody's passionate enough about it, you can do it in the traditional construct and actually do it in ways that they're not, that they don't have to do crazy numbers to make money on it, actually make money on it. But I think that there's no question that certain things um, right now, probably the most, the, the, the most opportune new set of doors to knock on is exactly what you said. It's the streaming services. But, but you know, I also think we've gotten over this thing where there's like this prejudice against television. You know, I'm a movie actor. I don't do television. That's that's gone. That's over, right? Um, every, the best people, Meryl Streep's in like long, you know, series. Big Little Lies, yeah, yeah. right? And, and it's one of the best things. She's, as always, like great no matter what the format, right? And everybody's kind of knows that and the world's changed. And I think it's great. It's not the same as the 90s. What happened in the 90s that was exciting for all of us was there was a reshaping. There was a, there was a new understanding of ways you could do it. And suddenly all these new doors got created because of Miramax's success. And for us, it produced suddenly this thing where 
people could come with their weird ideas and, and get it done, right? But the same thing is happening now. The same thing is happening now. That's what this all represents. I would say you could make the case that there's it's never been easier for diverse and eclectic visions to find their way into the That's world. That's how I feel. I think this I think this is a new narrative. It's an incredible moment. By the way, you you haven't really done the TV thing. No, but I I've been re- I mean I wrote I wrote um a mini series for HBO about the Lewis and Clark expedition that w- will get done. I loved I loved working. Because now you can do seven episodes. Yeah, that's why I think. They get the billboard, you get the side of the Soho House building, and they'll promote the shit out of it, and then you're done in seven weeks. It's, it's, uh, it's, um, to me, whinging about anybody who's like, like, sort of, I, you can't not be excited if you're a creative person. You can't not be excited about the scale of the, the way that all, now, was there anything out there that you were jealous of, like TV stuff, where you're like, oh, man, oh, I didn't I know mean, that could happen? Well, think about, like, The Wire and what that did. No, to, I, mean, you know, I mean, recent stuff. Oh, like, recent? you watch Fleabag, oh. and you're like, wow. I just, I've been just catching up on Six, that. Six 25-minute really episodes, yeah, and really, this is— but, the, but, by the way, the original Ricky Gervais office was like that. I mean, yeah, that I was like, that's one of the best things I've ever seen. You know what I mean? The, when are you going to be on Billions? <laughs> Don't you owe those guys? Owe them. You can't go on for one episode, play, like, some— billionaire evil billionaire you could you could he could be like again he could be for all the things you're against if i you if i say if i yourself. say on a mic like like with sort of a sour petulant tone like yeah those guys haven't invited me they're gonna ring me like you know is that and, true they haven't invited you no they probably have i've been i've been really down the hole with my maybe they just as, as they don't want to get rejected that's, so they haven't that's asked possible. you that's possible you um, should go on just um, do one episode they they probably asked me in the beginning if I if I would, but look how successful it is if I you could play yeah. an act you could have a weird accent you That's could true. do ninety billion things um, when are you going to be like in a, what's your sports movie when is this happening mm, can't you be like a like a NBA coach who's I, I bounced knew you, around I knew you were going to say that I'm in the coach era of yeah, my life no no you've been Jesus. wow I mean yeah, no I'm fifty you turned fifty so. I know, a I know. month before I did I know um yeah you're like your mm. coach you've this is your last chance. You've been fired two other times. How old was Redford when he did the natural? Well, he, I mean, I they had to look it up. No, he um, was, he was, he was, he was older then. And then, and they worked that into the story. They had to, I think he was like 46, 47, but they Could had be. to do like weird lighting shit with him. Yeah. Great sports movie though. Oh, so you, so you're ready to still be in a sports movie. Great sports movie. You haven't um, given up. Maybe the, that's the, a sports movie. The, the comeback story of the a 50 year old three point shooter. Player. <laughs> hey, you're a three point shooter. <laughs> You're just like the it's best. True. You can yeah. spread the floor, put you in the corner. What about um? Who's the oldest? Who's the oldest fit person who ever had a major sports moment? It's really cool. well. It would have to be a golfer. You'd golfer. be a golfer. Yeah. yeah. You could be like. Uh, can you play golf? Anyone like in their forties ever win an Olympic medal? I wonder. That's tough. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it's some new sport. Yeah. You had an advantage. Maybe but it's hey, esports. If if I can get Scorsese to direct the movie, he can just age me backwards. <laughs> That's true. Right? How Net, do you feel about get that? Get Netflix to pay to age me in, uh, backwards. Does this worry you that we're going to have the technology soon to for somebody to go take performances you've already done and do weird things to them? N- n- nobody's going to. No, n- the, the, the real cost of that is not going to make sense in, <clears throat> to anybody in most situations. But. I hope not. Um, I never it's, asked you about Fincher. What'd you learn from him? 
You worked with him early in his career, but it was that was his that was his I'm here movie. Um well I I for me like seven yeah, I mean I guess the game and the game. No, but I mean like those, he's those like were, I'm these aren't flukes. I'm actually yeah. gonna be here for the long haul. I, I don't uh, look when you when you're involved when a when when a director with his kind of talent meets a piece of text, it's almost like it it's almost like it was designed for the best of what they can do. It's so cool to be around that and see it going on um, and know that they're firing, in, that they're in that zone. Yeah. I felt that way with Inuritu on Birdman. It's like you, you're watching yeah. it and you're like, I am watching someone like in the zone where they are, they're just connecting on every level. And, um, you know, pound for pound, David's like, without a doubt, one of the most talented across every department. You've worked with some fucking awesome directors. Yeah. That's well, it. That's got to be 90% intentional. 10% luck. 10% luck. Yeah. Milos Forman, um, who was one of my heroes, People versus Larry Flynn, but he had done Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus and a lot of these things. Um, and Spike and Fincher and... Who's left? Yeah, Wes Anderson. Um, You've done three Wes Anderson movies. Yeah. Yeah. And I love him. Uh, Eastwood? I learned... I love... Yeah. You know, Eastwood, you're out of there. It's like yeah, 10 to 4. You're done. Golfing. Um, you learn you learn things from absolutely everybody. You learn things even from the people who quietly you think are kind of like screwing it up because you watch you watch you watch you know watching things watching things that aren't going so great um, right. is very instructive. You know what I mean? And um, it's as instructive as watching things that are great. But I do think that um, when you watch people um, who have real game, uh, you know, and it it it, it it's like it's masterclass all the time. You know what I mean? Every day, it's like you're 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 getting to, um, and and that doesn't mean that you're gonna um, nobody nobody grabs anybody's style really. Like like if you're, you, it's always gonna you're picking up tricks. No, it's gonna yeah, tip. it's gonna run through you. But you but yeah, but it's 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 like it's little stuff and big stuff. But that more like how do they how do they make this process flow? How do they how do they get the work done in the time they've got how do they you know create an environment what you know it's just I, you could go on and on but they but, but we have to go yeah um cuz the door just opened which means we have to go got i don't it. know who opened it but it sound, it felt ominous no but um, uh, how old's your son though my son is 6 have does he know yet that you could have just kept being the incredible hulk and you <laughs> gave up cuz he's going to be mad about this at some point no, probably no. about a year from now no he big he, dad he, i was just on the internet it's really why you really, gave up the incredible hulk what happened he, god i hope he's not on the internet <laughs> it's going to happen um, i'm t- my son's 11 i'm telling you he's going to go well, on the internet 11. and start reading about you soon yeah he, he has not he beautifully he he has not he doesn't know. he just doesn't know superheroes yet um Oh, that will happen too. I know. I'm sure it will. Um, but, uh, and by the way, it's like, I'm not, I, you know, I was, I subscribed to like five different comic books. I, I, I was like, I was a real fan. Um, uh, it, 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 my view of that, first of all, like, you know, clickbait journalism, people should know that in, among the many ways that the matrix is trying to like turn you into a mindless consumer. Yeah. There's the obvious ones, you know, like 
high fructose corn syrup kind of movies that come out, you know, like machine produced yeah. from any number of like shops and then want you to check out and then want you to buy shit later, right? We That's familiar to us. We can sort of spot that. We can sort of see that. But but I think that people don't even realize that we're starting, we're starting to grasp, I think, with all this, the degree to which we've been manipulated literally by foreign nations and active measure type things to try to get us antagonized with each other. Yeah. Right? Um, which has been happening. I mean, you read the Mueller report. Like this is, this should be completely a bipartisan concern. Like we have active foreign measures by antagonistic foreign powers working concertedly to yeah. sow discord in our country, right? But at the same time, the, a notch down from that, we've got like clickbait journalists who manufacture narratives of conflict because they want you to think like, you know, somehow that um, between Mark and me and Mark, that there's some sort of a like thing. It's like, it's like, okay, this is one of my oldest and most beloved friend colleagues in this trade. I was going to say, I would like, imagine you guys would have done liked each other. But yeah. laugh about it. I love, he's one of the best actors of my generation. You know, the notion <laughs> that there's a shred of anything other than love and celebration and laughter about all this is so stupid. And even the idea that, you know, I make a joke at my own expense on like Comedy Central, yeah. right? In the Bro Bruce Willis roast. And then, and it converts into like legit, like me, like, sh you know, throwing shade. It's like, no, I'm throwing shade on me, dickwads. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like I'm, I'm making fun of like my own, you know, the joke that I like to rewrite everything. I'm making fun of myself. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like, come on, grow up and recognize that like, there is no, there's no bad feeling. There's no discord. I think the guys who are making that stuff, uh, you know, are great. I think they're doing a fuck. If I was a Disney stockholder, I'd be like, you guys right. are doing it, right? Well done. done a real, well done. And um, the idea that there's like any actual conflict in any of this is so juvenile. I didn't even know about the fake conflict story. I just knew, I just knew that it's you gave up the Hulk and yeah, yeah, your yeah. son's going to be no, mad about it at some point. People are always like saying like, there's this like oh. stuff. And it's just like, Nobody should listen to any of that. It's they're just trying to get you to like everyone has. They're that trying stuff. to click a thing that takes you to outbrain and gets them paid. You know what I mean? That was you mentioned it, but that's like one of your internet reputations. Like he tries to rewrite every movie. Yeah. It's like I doubt he tries yeah. to rewrite every movie. No, I'm, I'm, I'm and sometimes I not believe that one. And actually, in many cases, we're talking about. I got paid to rewrite <laughs> right. that movie. Like it's actually a job I was hired to do. Right, you know right, what right. I mean? Um, and uh, and um, yeah. but, well, but, we, but 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 I my view of that is like it's like. Lots of people have played Hamlet, right? Yeah. Like, and nobody says like, oh, they gave up Hamlet. It's like, I don't, I, you don't, like Bill Bixby will always be the Hulk to me. Oh my God. And Eric, always, for that's life. it, for me, for life. That's every time, Every episode, it never worked out no for one, him. No one will His ever. His shirt was torn, he's I walking. I actually feel like, in many ways, I think no one could be better than him as yeah. that We character. have We have to go down. Yeah, we have somebody peeking guys, in. Guys, I love being part of that group. This was really fun. Yes. Will you come back and do rewatchables? What's that? We do a podcast where we break down a movie. Oh, yeah, sure. You're here. You would like it. Sure. You'd be good at it. Sure. It'd There's be fun. so many good ones. We pick, I mean. We'll let you pick the movie and come in. All right. This yeah, is good great. luck with your movie. When's it premiere? Uh, it comes out November 1st. And um, and I can tell you, uh, this is not a line. There's like there's like very little else on that weekend that an adult human being will enjoy more than this movie. 
Great. I certify it. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Don't forget to go to ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Thanks to Vudu, a leading streaming app with a library of over 150,000 titles available to rent or buy and over 10,000 titles you can watch for free on their ad-supported on-demand service, including a couple movies that we've done on the rewatchables like Con Air. We've done that one. I can't remember if we've done He Got Game. God, now I'm going to have to watch He Got Game again. I don't think we've done He Got Game yet. That is coming in 2020, I promise you. Uh, head to voodoo.com slash Bill Simmons to sign up and start watching today. Ali, Crimson Tide. That's another, Crimson Tide is another one we're going to be doing. VUDU.com slash Bill Simmons. Back on Thursday with one more podcast. And uh, pretty soon we're going to have an announcement of another thing I have been uh, brewing and hatching for the last few months. Yeah, stay tuned. Talk to you soon.